So tonight, I found myself thinking about Keith Olbermann and his tweet of a few weeks back calling Angel Reese a fucking idiot. And all the heat that that guy received was warranted. It was gross, and it was mean, and it definitely oozed some clear elements of racism. But what actually keeps getting me is this. Keith Olbermann is 64. Angel Reese is 20. Why the fuck is a 64-year-old taking to Twitter to call a 20-year-old college student a fucking idiot? I mean, I guess if she were like a neo-Nazi white supremacist, you could make the argument. But a basketball player? You're talking shit to a basketball player? Seriously? And in the same way I bemoan the path taken by Jason Whitlock, I just don't understand how it's come to this for Keith. You were an ESPN superstar, an MSNBC superstar, one of the truly gifted voices of television. And now, in 2023, you're tweeting at a college kid and calling her a fucking idiot. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Dr. Don Goldenberg, the former chief of rheumatology at Newton Wellesley Hospital in Newton, Massachusetts, and the author of the recent book, Unraveling Long COVID, which uh, sort of bombed after Don's publisher debated charging $150 per copy and then delayed the release by nearly a year. Yes, this is a publishing horror story told by a really great man. This is episode number 306. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. Okay, Don, I'm trying this again. You are visiting my house. You're at my kitchen table. We just had dinner. Um, you and your wife are longtime friends with my mother-in-law. Correct. And um, you are also the author of eight books. Um, and your last book was called Unraveling Long COVID. Long COVID. And it came out last December. It's your eighth book. You've written different sorts of books. Um, and we were talking in the kitchen about how sort of what a shit show it was. That you worked your ass off on this book. And then it was kind of a, I don't know if disaster is too strong of a word, but. No, I think that's a good word. Okay. Disaster. Serious question. What happened? You know, it's a, it, uh, the last two books I've written, I pitched them both to what I thought were very prestigious medical publishing company. Uh, and I don't think they did much to uh, push the book. And I'm not sure why these medical publishing companies don't look for a proper audience. So both of them were very disappointing. This one, uh, first of all, uh, they knew in the beginning that the book was meant for the public the patients who have long COVID, probably millions of people with this condition throughout the world, certainly more than a million now in the United States. It's a very confusing and controversial disorder. And they basically were all in with all my suggestions and, and who the uh, audience was. And then, uh, first of all, it took about eight or nine months longer to get the book uh, 
published. The, the uh, people who were doing the copy editing and everything were in India, and there was long holdups. Supposedly, some of it had to do with the pandemic, but it wasn't clear. And then um, they decided to market the book at an outrageous price, I thought, of, of $158. And they said, that's how we market the book. We push the price. We, we sell a lot to medical institutions, libraries, etc. And I said to them, but this is a book for the public. You knew that in the beginning. And you asked me, the editor asked me in, in the beginning, uh, what do you think the price should be? And I said $28. So after two months of wrangling back and forth, they put the price down to $58. And I said that was still a mistake. I tried to find the guy in charge at Wiley, didn't get anywhere. And the book is done terribly. So I thought it was, uh, you know, uh, I spent a year and a half on it, you know, eight hours a day, often very frustrating. So your motivation for writing the book to help people, is that your primary, like, why'd you write it? Yeah, I mean, all, uh, most of since I've, just before I finished uh, my medical career and seeing patients and uh, being in uh, writing, I, I did a lot of medical writing at the time. I always enjoyed the process. And then I started to write uh, a few books. One was on a, a condition that I was an expert in. That book, I went to get an agent. I uh, liked the process. I got a royalty for that. The book did, I guess, okay for a medical and I, I, I enjoyed it. And I think it was ego gratifying uh, to me. And, uh, and uh, so um, that started. And then I didn't have very much success. The, the, um, the original agent that I had from New York said, we're just not doing medical books anymore. They have to be something incredibly exceptional. So I then did a couple on my own, self-published. And, and then with the COVID epidemic, I'm sitting in my room and I'm getting thinking to myself, boy, this, I know a lot about what's happening here. This is a lot about a lot of similar to the things I've been dealing with in my life for the last 25 years as a physician. I think I can shed some light on it. And I think, again, I thought it would be good for my ego. So I did the process. I enjoyed the process. I think I get very obsessive compulsive doing it. But um, uh, in the end, it was a it was uh, a waste of a lot of effort. Oh, man. I just want to say for people listening, you were the chief of rheumatology at Newton Wellesley Hospital. Professor of Medicine at Tufts University, School of Medicine. Um, you obviously, this stuff means something to you. I wonder, I mean, I've had experiences, I told you before we started, like I wrote a Roger Clemens biography and the thing just tanked and it sucked. But for me, tanking was it probably sold 15,000 copies, which, you know, like it almost sounds like a bratty person to say like, oh, a tank because 15,000 copies for a lot of people would be kind of a joy. Yeah. Um, certainly be for me. Well, I was gonna, do you have any idea how many copies it sold? Uh, these books, the, the last, last the last two books, I can't imagine. Um, the one for, for, um, Oxford, maybe 500. Yeah. And, and this, this one, well, this one's still up, but I don't think this will even do that well. And this again, uh, what, what is, where is the audience and what are medical publishers trying to, to, trying to do? But, and again, I know just for, 
uh, comparison. There's a uh, guy who's a science writer for the New York Times who wrote a very similar book to the one I'm talking about on long COVID. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, I remember like one of the senators has long COVID and he wrote the foreword for the book. The book looked like it was going to do very well and it's tanked too. So maybe it's just people don't want to buy medical books. They don't want to, particularly something like this, which changed and I think people are sick about, you know, uh, hearing about. I mean, they want to, they'd much rather read a book about Jim, you know, Jim Brown or, you sure. know. Yeah. So um, does it make it, does a book not doing well commercially make it a regretful experience? Um Partially, I think I, you know, I, I would, I would like to say, you know, my wife keeps pointing out to me that you like the process during pandemic years, particularly you spend hours and hours up in your study doing this. And I, you know, I look through the literature every single day. So there's a part of me, that's the way I function, you know, in my medical career too. So I think that has helped me as I'm no longer a physician, but want to stay close to the medical profession. But as an ego, you know, I, I have a big ego. I, 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 I really felt not getting anything. I wouldn't even care about the money so much as it's, it's the, you know, just the book just tanking, as you said. Did you try promoting it? Were there efforts made to? I did. In fact, I went to the publisher on this last one and I said, what if I do a blog? And uh, your wife helped me, uh, you know, because I knew nothing about setting up a blog. I set up the blog. I did it. I had three blog pieces. The first couple blogs, a couple hundred people looked at them. After that, nobody. So I'm not going to do any more blogs. Yeah. Wait, I'm actually interested. I wasn't even thinking of this. So, you, I'm, I'm 50. I'm almost 51. You're older than me. Yep. Almost 80. Much older. Yeah. Right. And I find it all really dizzying the Instagram and the TikTok and the Twitter and trying to promote and how can I reach these people? Are you like, when it comes to promoting a book, are you sitting here approaching 80? Are you like, what the fuck am I supposed to do? Or do you have some? Well, I think that's what my first experience, because it was so positive. I, I just found a literary agent and going through the list in New York City. You How know, long ago was this? 25, 30 years. Okay. And, you know, she, we discussed it back and forth. And she agreed. She got a contract with Penguin. You know, the editor helped me at that time. I thought it was very positive. So I was thought this is going to be another career for me. Right. And nothing happened like that ever since. And I think a lot of it has to do with just like you said, Jeff, with all these other things and ways, the TikTok, the Instagram, and you know, who wants to read a book like this? Yeah, it's hard. It's, it's hard. daunting. It's really hard. It is. Um, I'm curious, since the topic of your book is long COVID, when you look around at sort of America now, we're sitting here across the table from each other. We're not wearing masks. Um, people fly now. They don't wear masks. People go to restaurants, blah, blah, blah. Where do you feel like we are? Where do you feel like, are you worried about COVID as sitting here? Like, do you? <laughs> well, interesting. I, I had COVID. Uh, I went, my wife and I went three years without getting COVID. All 90, the latest issue, 95% of people have now had, uh, have now had COVID. So we were one of the last people. I got really sick with, with COVID much more than I, I was. How bad was it? Bad. I, I was, um, and I think as people, and one of the reasons I got so interested was I was so exhausted physically and mentally that people talk 
about the cognitive disturbances, et cetera. And I, I had, towards the end, after the third, I, I, my test didn't turn negative uh, for 19 days, which is very unusual. So I'm thinking to myself, and I, here I've done all this research. I'm a, I'm going to get long COVID now. So I, the way I feel now, if I feel like this for the rest of my life, I don't know if I could continue like this. So I really felt like shit. And what did it feel like? It felt like the worst flu that I, it, it was the sickest I've ever felt. Um, I was the first three nights I didn't sleep. I was coughing all night long. And the, la- the last two weeks, were, it was just plain exhaustion. And we have a, a set of steps to get to our bedroom. I could barely get up without getting to her. And, you know, I do a lot of athletic stuff. So it was, it was so daunting physically and emotionally. And you get that feeling that, you know, are you, are, are you ever going to recover? So it it was it was bad. So what was your question before that? Oh no, just how you feel about sort of where the country is in relation. Yeah. To okay. Well, the, I think you know we're over. Obviously, we're over the worst as, as far as COVID goes. Uh, long COVID continues to be, you know, uh, 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 I think petering out somewhat. It's still an issue. It's one of these things that these post-viral illnesses have been very very poorly understood. And I've been dealing with those kinds of things in my career, so it was very much of an interest to me. What the the, the tragedy I think about um, COVID and long COVID is the terrible misinformation that we're doing, and that's what really worries me. Long after that, I'll, I'll be gone. What's the next public health crisis going to be? What's the misinformation? When I see, you know. Um, you know, the, how politics has distorted, uh, medicine right now and how, you know, it, it, that, that's, that's the most bothersome thing. I feel like if I were you and I had your background and I saw the way like, uh, Dr. Fauci was getting attacked and turned into this pinata. I would just want to punch a wall every day. Like it had to infuriate you. It did. It did. It still does. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, and, you know, I'm, you know, because I'm sort of not, I've been retired now for six, seven years. So I think it would have been much more bothersome if I was still in the mix of it. And if I had to be practicing medicine during COVID, which I wasn't. So I was shielded from that. And that's one of the reasons there's a very terrible burnout now in medicine and nursing, as you know, throughout the country. It's just been, it's been a bad three years for everybody, but it's been a real bad time for the medical profession. Do you feel like when you came up and you went to, you know, you went to medical school and you went through your whole experience becoming a a physician, was there some mistrust of medicine or is that a completely new phenomenon in America? I, I, I don't, I don't remember that kind of mistrust. If you, you know, in, in polls, you know, even up to five years ago, um, you know, the people would trust their medical professionals, you know, 75, 80% of the people would say that much more than, you know, the trusting anybody else, basically other than family. And I think that's changed dramatically in the last three or four years. It's insane. It is. It is just, it's, it's scary. It really is. And when I see, you know, and like, you know, uh, it's just, it's, it's difficult. I have a new, I have a, I think for your, your ninth book, I think you should write a book called trust your fucking doctor. What do you think? <laughs> I like I'll ghostwriting for you. If you're, I, if you're, <laughs> Before we continue with two writers, Sling and Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. 
and I'm here with my little adorable niece Amelia, who's all about the snazzy throwback gear available at RoyalRetros.com. So Amelia, would you say you're more of a New Jersey General's hat person or a San Francisco Demons hoodie gal? Amelia, are you going to go with the Seattle Pilots jacket or the Southern California Sun mini helmet? No. Amelia, seriously, it's me, Uncle Jeffy, fun Uncle Jeffy. Can you just help a guy out with his only sponsor? I love you, girl, but you're fired. Um, wait, all right, so a decade ago, you wrote a book called Buckets and His Buddies. <laughs> and this is freaking awesome. It's a biography of Charles Buckets Goldberg, your father. My father. Who played for the Green Bay Packers from 1933 to 1945. Right. And in fact, you just told me before this that you were named for Don Hudson, the mm-hmm. legendary Hall yeah. of Fame Packer. So what made you write a book about your dad? Well, I was fascinated. I still was fascinated by you know, when I was a kid, uh, my dad would take me to his talks in front of the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis Club. This is in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. He was, you know, wherever I went, you know, so I would go down to the Milwaukee Braves or the Green Bay Packers game and people in the stand said, Buckets over here, Buckets say hi to me. So I grew up with this adulation of my father and I loved listening. I, I, I probably was envious, I'm sure, but I also loved listening to his story. He was a great storyteller and I remembered almost all of his stories and I could play them back in my mind. He was also, you know, I he, he grew he, he, he came from Odessa, Russia during the pogroms. Uh, he came, comes to Milwaukee. He's broke. How old was he when he came to U.S.? 11. Okay. His father's a junk dealer in Milwaukee with a, one of these old carts. So, I mean, I had all those things in my memory and I thought, well, somebody should tell them. And, you know, and, and I, I had a great time researching and doing, but I had great stories about, you know, the old, the old Green Bay Packers in the thirties and forties, the real start of the era. Wait, I freaking love this. I just want to say, yeah, first of all, your dad's on the all decade NFA, NFL's all decade team for the 1930s, uh, all pro 1939. He's on the Packers all time team. He's in the Packers Hall of Fame. He was a guard and he was five foot 10 and 220 pounds at his top. At his top. At his top. Which he is had, insane. He had, he had no neck. That's all I remember. But he was, you know, the, the, you know, athletes were very different in those days. Even Don Hudson. I mean, he was like 5'11, 180 pounds. He played both ways. Of course, everybody played both ways. My dad was the middle guard, you know, on defense and a guard on offense. He, his first year, he played fullback. He, it was a single win, which is why he played in Wisconsin. He carried the ball. He, he actually set a rookie record for touchdowns. I think he had 10 touchdowns the first year and he never scored another touchdown in 12 years after that. They got a guy named Clark Kinkle, who was a better back than my father, moved my father to guard. And that was it. And the great stories of Curly Lamble, who was quite a, quite a coach. What's your, what's your, what's your best story about your dad? What's your money story? Your dad in football. Uh, he was uh, uh, negotiating with Curly Lamble to come back. They had won the won the NFL championship, and my dad asked for a raise, 
uh, Lambo uh, opens up the door, the drawer, and is says, Goldenberg, here's what everybody is making on the team. Don Hudson is making, you know, $1,000 a year. You're making seven fifty. Do you think you can make more than Don Hudson? Do you deserve it? My dad was best friend with Don, who was the best player in the league. And, of course, my dad said, oh, I understand now. So, Curly, it turns out, had two drawers. The real contracts were in the left side drawer, and he used this to negotiate with dad. And dad found that out and almost killed Curly Lambeau a year later. That's so awesome. Your dad, um, your dad passed away in 1986. Random weird question. Would he recognize the modern NFL? Would he like the modern NFL? Would he be confused by this game in front of him? I, I don't think he would be confused. I think he saw the evolution. He, he was on the board of directors in the end for the Packers and all that. He got very friendly with some of the players. You know, teams have changed. There were when my dad, during my dad's player era, there was not a single black football player. So that alone was, you know, it, it just uh, how how that has changed uh, the you know, the extraordinary, you know, speed and differences. As you say, the three hundred and thirty pound. I mean, there was no such thing in those days. The biggest player was two eighty in the, in ten years. So all that has changed. But I think he would recognize it. And I'll tell you, when I was watching the Philadelphia Eagles this year and how they were, you know, pushing each other. Yeah. It reminded me of you know the old Green Bay Packers pushing each other. If we okay, if we zapped your dad and Don Hudson, we'll just say we took them from 1937 and we zap them in modern times and we give them six months of training. Could they make an NFL roster in 2023? Only if their bodies also were zapped to modern day bodies. <laughs> yeah, otherwise no. Otherwise no. Right. Um, you self published that book. Uh, which one? It's a bar, buckets. Buckets and, absolutely, buckets and buddies. Okay, so what did it what did it entail? Self publishing a book? Like, what were the complicated? Did you try getting a publisher? Like, how'd you go about it? I did try getting a publisher, the same one I had originally for the medical book, who was not interested. I decided not to. I decided mainly, and in contrast to the other ones that I've recently done, this book, Jeff, was more for me and my family than for anything else. It was more of a, a heartfelt thing for me, talking about my dad and the Packers, and I remember. So I wasn't as... It wasn't such an important thing for my ego to get this book published and get it out there. It was more, so I was happy self-publishing it. So did you like, I have no idea how that works. Like, did you print up 500 copies? Yeah, I did it with Amazon. You did? Yeah. And do you have any idea how many copies you sold? No. Did you try promoting it through the Packers or anything of that nature? I did. They weren't interested. They weren't? They were not. I did that through the Packers. Packers already had their own guy who is, you know. The team historian, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The team historian. He was not interested in even discussing it with me. Wait, so, so, you know, I worked, um, I wrote a Brett Favre biography. Yeah. And Bob Harlan at the time was. That's the guy I talked to. And he wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. That I'm not trying to get all controversial here, but like. That had to hurt but, your feelings a little bit. I'll tell you, if you would call Bob Harlan, discuss buckets, you probably would have, you know, we could have done it together. But it's the old thing about not having, I think, that in. So you feel like not being a sports writer, being like, I'm the son and I'm writing this book. And exactly. blah, blah, blah. He's like, oh, another junk it. product. I, I absolutely joke. Yes. So did you like, did you write it? 
Did you view it when you're writing a book and you view it as a passion project and you view it as sort of for your family? Um, did you write it thinking sort of commercially at all? Like, did you think this is for when you're writing, are you thinking mass audience or are you thinking this is for the kids I, in my family? I, 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 I'm not sure. I still thought the stories that he told and I, you know, over the years I heard him speak to lots of people. I thought those people would still love the book. Yeah. So I thought that audience would still be there, but it had to come with the Packers imprint and that didn't happen. I, I, that pisses me off on behalf of, I feel like your dad, like all these guys, they didn't get paid that much. They got their asses kicked. They were physically decimated, oftentimes mentally decimated. Here's a book honoring one of the most important players in Packers history, written by a family member who grew up in Wisconsin and attended the University of Wisconsin, and the team won't touch it. That's right. That's kind of infuriating. Sorry about that. No, I'm. <laughs> you're bringing up something that I was very infuriated by. Yeah, Man, do you um, do you love writing, or do you view writing as a? I mean, you're not a writer by trade, right? Right. I I love hate writing. Do you love writing? I think I love hate writing too. I, you know, I I, it, I I do like the process. I like doing the research as you do. I like really getting, you know, into it, spending a lot of time and really doing a good job. And I like even editing my, my own, you know, stuff. So I, I do like it. I, and, and as my wife keeps telling me that it's kept you very busy for the last five or six years. So from that point, you know, being retired, sometimes you need a passion. And I think it is a passion. Interesting. Did you enjoy actually writing a blog, even though you feel like you didn't do that much or were you just like, this feels I like, think you know, I saw the handwriting on the wall with a blog that this wasn't going to do much. And I was doing that really to promote the book. And I didn't feel when I didn't feel the publishing company or the editors were really behind it. And they said, you can do the blog. It's a good idea to help the book, but we don't want anything to do with it. That was, that was, that was depressing. I was going to say you wrote a book in 2020, the pain epidemic. A Guide to Issues, Symptoms, Treatments, and Wellness. And you got a stellar, stellar review from Booklist. Um, armed with firsthand knowledge from his personal and professional lives, uh, Goldenberg advocates for an interdisciplinary approach that can include yoga, meditation, exercise. After all, he writes, chronic pain always involves both the mind and the body. Exercise seemingly the cheapest, most effects, effective elixir decreases pain and improves cognitive and, and psychological health. Goldenberg assures, Lee Goldenberg assures readers that sufferers may understandably feel helpless and hopeless, but that they can be reassured of the chronic pain can be managed. Um, writers actually kill for book list reviews. They do. I swear to God, book list reviews actually matter. Um, is that a book you feel better about than your latest or do you feel kind of the same? That's interesting because that was uh, this this publisher. So it was only, you know, never came out in a hard copy. That was just the ebook. Okay. And that's what the publisher is. It was an ebook group. So that was one of my first experience with them. But it was a good experience. And then they asked me actually, because it had good reviews, I think they did publish a second edition of it. Uh -huh. So uh, from that point, I think it was a good experience. From a monetary viewpoint, I've gotten nothing out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing. Not a yeah. Kurdish. Yeah. But you know what? You got a great review from both lists. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I have a final question for you. This is way out of left field, okay. but I always wonder this. Okay. You spend your career, much of your career in medicine. We're both, you know, I think about aging all the time. You're older than I am, but 
you know, I think about aging all the time. Just having your career, how do you feel like that impacts your sense and view and comfort with your own mortality? Do you think being exposed to illness and being acutely aware of illness makes you more nervous about it? Or do you, are you more comfortable, do you think, with the idea of aging and ultimately dying? I think uh, it goes both ways. I think, uh, uh, you know, the traditional thing when you're younger is you see a lot of, you know, tragedies and things and you, you feel like you're going to get a lot of the things, you know, you see somebody age 30, you're age 30, you're dying, see your patient dying of leukemia, you're going to get it, you know. So I think you go through that. As you get older and work with people, particularly in a field like rheumatology where people usually live a long time and I, I, you know, I have relationships for patients for 40 or 50 years, I think that made me more comfortable with my aging and more able to say, this guy really has done really great. And look at how sharp he is at age 80, despite all this thing. So I think it worked both ways. Is 80 weird? Does it sound weird to you? It does sound weird. It does. But I feel like I'm a young 80. Yeah. You seem like a young 80. I, I feel like. Yeah, that's good. Well, listen, I appreciate you coming to my kitchen table and uh, talking to my podcast. Thank my you so pleasure, much. Jeff. All right. That's easy fun. peasy. I knew it'd be fun. Yeah, there we go. That was great. <laughs> I want to thank today's guest, Dr. Don Goldenberg, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can purchase Unraveling Long COVID and Buckets and His Buddies at Amazon. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd be really appreciative. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding. <laughs>